I'm just going to give a little intro here. Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic cult and current films and the people that made them and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film and pop cultural history one memory at a time. Tonight is George Pal Night, and to help celebrate one of Hollywood's most inventive and imaginative filmmakers, we have invited author, film historian, curator, and commentator, Justin Humphreys, whose latest book is appropriately George Pal, Man of Tomorrow. Welcome, Justin. Hey, Steve. How's it going? Delighted to be here. Glad to have you. I mean, this is this is the corner of the universe where we really love movies and the people who make them. And how can you not love George Pal? No, I agree. I think if you if you love movies, period, he's wonderful. But if you love horror, fantasy, and science fiction, you will find him. Sooner or later, you will find him, and the odds are you will love him. Um, he was... I don't know if there has been um, a science fiction filmmaker in the last century who's had a bigger impact on the genre. Well, it's interesting. Today, it seems like every third movie is science fiction, fantasy, horror, whatever. I mean, the genres have taken over. And I wonder that George Pal, in a way, was way ahead of his time i mean in terms of the a-list in in those days back in the 50s back in the 60s you know the the films that we love in that genre were not really considered to be the a-list movies i mean they were they were kind of fodder for kids uh that's not how the business is today in fact i would argue that hollywood is completely surrendered to kids and that's all they seem to be making. But back in the day, uh, you know, as as you and I, as, as young people, we would get a few movies a year that were targeted towards us. Um, tell me, tell me where your path to George Powell begins. I mean, obviously, probably from watching some of those first movies. I think so. I, you know, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, so I was seeing this, this stuff on TV and video to begin with. But, um, you know, in those days, I mean, you know, I, I don't know if kids nowadays have any clue how hard it was to find behind the scenes information and behind the scenes photos and stuff from all of these old genre movies back up until the Internet. Um, when I was a kid, I would grab every book I could find on science fiction movies, every book I could find on horror movies. And there weren't that many. There really weren't that many, especially in a small town like I grew up in. But George Powell's movies were always in them, whether it was Destination Moon or The Time Machine or especially War of the Worlds. Sometimes when worlds collide, sometimes Seven Faces of Dr. Lowe. But um, he was really ubiquitous. He was one of those people like um, like George Melies that was always in there. He was always in there. So I started seeking his movies out. I think the first I saw was The Time Machine, which I loved and still do. And I think it might have been, I think the next one was War of the Worlds. And I remember as a kid, War of the Worlds was the first movie that made me sit up and realize just how gorgeous Technicolor is. 
because the color in it is so rich and saturated and powerful, and it has so much to do with the emotional and visual impact of that film. And I, I vividly remember that. And I love Technicolor. I'm a huge fan of Three Strip Technicolor. Um, but th those movies were just, they were always there. And um, so uh, actually, and when I was a kid, my mom read me Charles G. Finney's The Circus of Dr. Lowe that, uh, of course, George filmed The Seven Faces of Dr. Lowe. And um, it's a pretty adult book, but she figured she was like, well, the more adult stuff will just go over his head, which it did. So I loved that book and I was really eager to see Seven Faces of Dr. Lowe. And I remember when it came on TNT when I was a kid and I just adored it. And uh, it became my favorite Powell film. It's one of my favorite fantasy films. And um, I just never seen anything like it. Um, there was a there's a respect. If you love fantasy and science fiction, there's a respect for the integrity of the genre in Powell's movies that you didn't see in a lot of movies in those days. I mean, he really, really cared about it. You know, I, I think I, one. I, oh, go I, ahead. I was just going to say the word that I always use when it comes to his films is there's a certain charm about them. And I don't use that word lightly. In, in movies today, sometimes they hammer you over the head with the special effects and the, the genius of the imagination of the filmmakers. But the, the movies lack a quality, which I think is charm. And nowhere is it more present than in the time machine that you are charmed by Rod Taylor's performance. And even in a, in a very desperate drama like War of the Worlds, you're charmed by the relationship between Gene Barry's character and, and Robinson's character. And of course, you mentioned uh, Dr. Lowe. I always said Lau. Is it Lowe or is it Lau or does it matter? I've heard it. I've heard it both ways. Um, I have a I have a friend who collects Chinese antiques and she kind of chided me and said, Lao, uh, um, uh, Lao, but I've always said low and they do, they kind of go back and forth in the movie. So I think it can go either way. I think it's one of those things like, I remember how Harlan Ellison used to point out how Dr. Seuss is actually technically pronounced, he pronounced it Dr. Seuss. And people took to pronouncing it Dr. Seuss so much, it became Dr. Seuss. So I think that, that <laughs> might have been what happened with Dr. Lowe. If it's, pronounce it either way. It's, but, like but when I, some, it's like when somebody has a dour personality. I completely understand what dour means until somebody told me that it's pronounced doer. I said, I'm sorry, there's no way I'm going to refer to his personality as being a doer personality. Sorry. No, I agree. I agree. I, I heard an English friend of mine pronounced it doer. And I, it, to me, it's, it's dour. It's it's, I now guess you, it's like, look, if they, can you, pronounce, if they can pronounce Houston, Houston in Manhattan, then by God, I can pronounce <laughs> the word dour. But no, there, there is the charm. The charm aspect is absolutely there. I, when I was interviewing Nick Garris uh, for my book, he said there's, it was either Mick or Bill Malone. Might have been Bill Malone. I think it was Bill. Bill said there is a likability to George Powell's movies and you can't buy it you can't fake it um it's like that almost like that likability that carol burnett has you can't fake that kind of likability um and uh there is a real charm there is a real sweetness and there's a there's a human quality that i think is really missing from a lot of genre movies now 
Um, there's um, there's also there's a charm, there's a likability, uh, and there's this optimism, this tremendous optimism. I think that Powell's movies represent the best of post-war America's can-do, make-do attitude. You know, it's like whatever you throw at humanity in his films, we will lick. You know, it's like, all right, the Martians have attacked us. Somehow we're going to beat them, you know, even if it's not our doing, even if it's germs that do it for us, we will beat them. Um, or in When Worlds Collide, perfect example, the world's going to be destroyed. All right, let's build a spaceship and go to another world. You know, there's his movies aren't about there, there's there's this wonderful upbeat quality to them. I one of the things that to, to go back to your original question. One of the things that always attracted me to his movies as a youngster was I would always leave them feeling better about everything. You just feel better about the human condition. You know, um, there's something really, really winning about them. Um, so, yeah, there is a lot of charm. Well, we we could use a bunch of George Pals today because I find that so many films are dark and uh, depressing. I think uh, I think uh, film directors probably 20 years ago started embracing uh, post-apocalyptic thrillers, and we've gotten a whole bunch of them, and almost to the point where that's all that everybody seems to be making. And, and even the even the Marvel universe seems to concentrate mostly on the destruction of the world and how the superheroes can save it. I, I'm just kind of tired of that dynamic because I feel like we've seen it. Now, people have pointed out that generally audiences determine what Hollywood makes. And since uh, people are very pessimistic about the world condition today, a lot of the movies are very pessimistic. And as you point out, in post-World War II America, there was a sense of optimism. I think Peter Bogdanovich kind of coined the term uh, when he was doing his uh, video reviews on morning television, he talked about post-war optimism culminating in movies like Singing in the Rain and, uh, you know, the musicals, the great Hollywood musicals of the 50s. Uh, now, you met you met George Powell and got to know him pretty well personally? No, no, I never. He died when I was about a year and a half old. Oh, my I goodness. Never, I so never sad. did. No, no worries. No, no. I I just got to know his family really well. Um, his son, his son David. Um, what happened was, um, I one of the main reasons I wrote the book was I write books that I want to read that haven't been written, and there was there has never been up till now a really very 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 thorough I mean really thorough definitive book on George Powell. Um, there's Gail Hickman's book. There's an Italian book. I think there's maybe one other, maybe, I can't remember. But what happened was I thought, well, someone needs to do this. There's so many stories and so many people he worked with and so many things. And um, I was doing an article on Hua Chang ages ago, and I got to know David Powell a little bit. And I said, is anybody doing a book on your dad? And he said, no. And I thought, good God, you know, I've got to do this now or they're all going to be gone. All of these people that worked with George will be gone. And so I just started interviewing him, started the book. And um, and sure enough, here we are. And uh, I think maybe I, I interviewed about 68 or 70 people for the book. And I think a good 40 or 45, five of them are gone now. Who was, um, your, who was your first interview? 
My first interview was Royal Dano, and it wasn't even for this book. It was actually for Psychotronic Video Magazine when I was 15. It was Royal's last interview, and uh, we talked. One of the movies we talked about was Doctor Lowe, and he said some interesting things about it. And um, uh, let's see, there was Royal Watchang was one of the first. Um, Wa was just the best. And, and Joseph, we should, we should let the listeners know that Wa Chang was the one of the main cogs in a company called Projects Unlimited, which was one of the great special effects companies that certainly was supplying George with a lot of his effects. Yeah, Wa, Wa Ming Chang was, I mean, if you could quantify talent, Wa was one of the single most talented people I've ever known. He was, his work is so ubiquitous. And he was never really interested in getting a lot of exposure. Um, but he worked on all these things that became very, very famous. Like he did most of the creatures for The Outer Limits and a lot for Star Trek. And he did the Sphinx for uh, the Time Machine. And he did, the uh, let's see, oh God, a, a lot of stuff for Wonderful World of the Brothers Grimm and for Dr. Lowe. And he did one of Elizabeth Taylor's headpieces for Cleopatra. I mean, he was just astonishing. But I talked to him and... Um, I originally just wanted to do a making of article on seven faces of Dr. Lowe when I was a teenager. And um, the, uh, so it just sort of, sort of expanded into the book. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting, Justin, in terms of that movie, if you were making Lowe today, you would literally be run out of town if you hired a white actor to play Dr. Lowe. I mean, that's obviously... Uh, a big no these days. Uh, the concept of hiring different ethnicities then was much more acceptable, although there were times when it got to be ridiculous. I was just watching Breakfast at Tiffany's recently, and I saw once again Mickey Rooney's performance as this irate Japanese man. It was so horrifying. <laughs> and from, oh, Blake, yeah. from Blake Edwards, who I consider to be a pretty progressive filmmaker, that he later admitted it was a big mistake. But Tony Randall, I thought, was so terrific as Dr. Lowe. You know, speaking of charm, I mean, that movie is loaded with it. And of course, uh, the John Erickson um, romance with, um, with Barbara, Barbara, Eden. Barbara Eden was just so, so, so nicely done. And, you know, the thing is, he also adds the kid, you know, the young boy. Was that a Corcoran boy? No, it was. It's a, a guy named Kevin Tate. And Kevin I Tate. wish to God I could find him. I think he's still alive. I think he's floating around. I You'll see him in a few other movies and TV shows. Like he's in, he has a little part in Wild in the Streets and some other stuff. But he's wonderful in it. And everybody said he was great. Like, I mean, you know, he, uh, Barbara Eden liked him a lot. And Dal McKinnon, who's one of the supporting actors, liked him a lot. I think he's wonderful, but I think the thing about, you know, the whole issue of uh, yellow face, it is an antiquated theatrical um, form or style or technique, but I think that Tony Randall approaches the character very, very respectfully, and I don't think anyone ever in the history of mankind left that movie disliking Dr. Lowe. I mean, Dr. Lowe is essentially, he's a, he's an, I mean, you don't even know if he's human. He is something beyond our comprehension. And the other thing, I think that one of the reasons it gets kind of problematic these days for certain people is because he you know, speaks part of the, he, his accent changes and changes and changes. And some of it is in this kind of pidgin English. 
but um, he is, as, as one critic I saw, he's weaponizing that because he, Dr. Lowe speaks the way, most of the time, he speaks the way people expect him to speak. When these rednecks are talking to him, he speaks in pidgin English. When um, the boy is talking to him, he talks like a wise old soothsayer. When he's giving the tour, he talks like a nasal tour guide. And it changes when he's talking about the Loch Ness Monster. He speaks with the Scottish, Scottish bird. My pet, my pet. My pet. Like, one of my favorite. <laughs> Actually, you know something funny? I will say this. Um, okay, you know how in, in bathrooms, public bathrooms, on the, the dryer or whatever, it says no touch. Every, or the, on, the, on the paper towel dispenser, no touch. I can always think, I always think of Dr. Lowe going, no touch, no touch. <laughs> but, um, but I absolutely love Dr. Lowe. And of course, the thing is, he's not a figure of ridicule. He's a, he's a hero. He saves everybody's hash. And I mean, I, I don't think the film is in the slightest racist. I mean, there's the scene where you see the two, where the two thugs, it's Royal Dano and John Doucette, go to beat up the Native American guy, played by an actual Native American, Eddie Little Sky, and Dr. Lowe steps in and saves him. I mean, this is obviously a film that is not on the side of racists. I, I, I think there's, there's been so much hypersensitivity about these things. I, I adore Dr. Lowe. I think it's a marvelous movie. How, and, how, uh, how much different is the screenplay from the uh, book? Well, here's the thing. There were several, there were multiple screenplays and I go into them in the book. Um, all of them were different. All of them were different. It was Charles Beaumont who spirit, Charles Beaumont, of course, to the listeners, um, was one of the greatest fantasists of the last half of the 20th century. He wrote some of the best Twilight Zones, wrote some marvelous screenplays for Roger Corman and for Pal and other people. Um, and Powell, went, Powell would ask writers he worked with, you know, what's a project you would really like to do? And he said, well, I'd love to adapt Charles G. Finney's Circus of Dr. Lowe. And what happened was his original script was very different in a lot of ways from the book, very different. Um, there was uh, this whole subplot about a witch girl at the circus. Le I think it's Leah the witch girl. I think she was in the first draft. And she can never fall in love with a mortal because she is immortal. And if she falls in love, whoever she falls in love with will age and wither and die. And she'll just stay the same age. And there was all this other amazing stuff in it. And um, so that was what Powell started with. Then Ben Hecht was brought in to write a draft. And all I'm going to say about it is it's absolute garbage. And like, I think virtually nothing from the Ben Heck version made it into the film. So then finally, by the end, you have basically what you see on the screen. Um, but it's, uh, there was also a modern version. They did a version that was close to what you see in the, the, the finished film, but it had, it was set in the sixties and it had Jeeps and there's references to the space program and all this stuff. But I don't think it would, would have worked. It's like the time machine. It's a story that works best in that kind of turn of the century milieu. By the way, I, I want to put one kudo here to Lee Harline, who did the music. Uh, I always seem to be, I, I, often in genre films, a lot of attention is per, per, you know uh, paid to the story and the casting. 
But sometimes one of the charming elements is the music. And I thought the music for The Seven Faces of Dr. Law was very, very good. No, I couldn't agree more. I absolutely couldn't agree more. Um, it It's at someone, I can't remember who first said it, but somebody said the soundtrack is, it's the score for an Eastern Western because it has both sort of Chinese motifs and wet American Western motifs in this marvelous, really unique, charming way. It's a, it's a, the theme music's lovely. The music, that sort of um, poignant music for Apollonius is really touching. And that piece, that, that, that really wild frenetic piece that builds and builds between Pan and uh, Angela and Barbara Eden is just, just marvelous. I love that score. I dun, really love dun, that score. Dun, 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 dun. Let's go. <laughs> It's just, it's so beautiful. Oh, yeah. And and John Erickson does a terrific job as Pan. Did you get a chance to talk to John? I never did. I actually, I wrote to him and I think the letter got misplaced or something. And I got a call from his widow after he had passed. And um, we talked a little bit about it. I did, I, I found an interview with him. He liked Powell, but he just wasn't satisfied with the finished film. And I think, to, and Tony Randall wasn't either. Tony Randall was, he loved making it, he would say, but he just wasn't satisfied with it. Um, hmm. I think he, I think he loved what was, what was taken directly from Finney's novel, but I think he thought the rest of it was kind of too cute or Disney-fied or something, but I disagree. Well, uh, back in the day, I think it was Saturday night at the movies, NBC. I think NBC ran the War of the Worlds on, uh, or it may have been the Sunday night movie. When one of those movie shows, when popular movies were, were done in prime time, and War of the Worlds just made such an impact on me. And as you know, I wrote the long piece for Fred Clark and Cinefantastique. Um, how much information were you able to glean from people from on War of the Worlds? You know what? You had covered it at, at great length. Your article was a huge, huge help, by the way. I mean, I, that was a major source. Um, there's an excellent, well, Ann Robinson was very helpful in, you know, my interviews with her. Uh, I interviewed Al Nozaki, um, who was about 90, I think, when I talked to him, but he was very mentally, mentally alert, and very, very helpful. I interviewed Jack Senner, who was Al's assistant, and um, Gay Griffith, uh, Pal's secretary, and uh, who else? Now, here's a funny story. I was hosting some screenings of Pal's movies and doing Q&As with some of his actors, his actresses and at the Egyptian in 2015, and it turned out one of the volunteers at the Cinematheque Joe Abdo was in War of the Worlds. He is one of the little, he and his brother are the two little kids when the people are coming out of the theater after seeing Samson and Delilah at the beginning. And there's the two kids there with like their ice cream or whatever. And they're looking skyward at the, the, the meteor, what they think is a meteor falling. And it's Joe and his brother. And so what happened? So I was introduced to Joe and um, Joe I think it was his dad was the doctor on the Paramount lot and his uncle was Michael Moore, the or Mickey Moore, the famous, I think, second unit director. 
Sure, of course. Who worked on, who worked on everything from War of the Worlds to, to Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, he was very, very prolific. But anyway, um, years later, when they restored War of the Worlds, they were screening the, four, the, the new restoration at Paramount. And Anne invited me. And Craig Barron and Ben Burt did a presentation. I brought Joe Abdo. And after the screening, Joe walked me around the lot and he was telling me about all these, you know, what was here, what was there. And of course, the Pacific Tech, the quote unquote Pacific Tech building in the movie is just a building on the Paramount lot. And we were able to, we walked over to stage 18 where they shot it and the doors were open and I could look into this big cavern. And because when I, when I write about the making of a movie as often as humanly possible, I will visit um, anywhere that exists that's described in the book that, that I'm talking about. Oh, sure. You kind of have, it's like, it's like being an archeologist and going back to ancient Egypt. You got to walk, walk in those paths. For me, I guess one of my great finds uh, <clears throat> on War of the Worlds was finding uh, Barry Lyndon's uh, treatment before uh -huh. the script was written. The whole thing where it was, you know, it was all laid out interestingly and very differently from, the final final movie because like you i had even when i was starting my research back in 1982 excuse me not what am i saying 1982 i'm talking about 76 uh byron haskin was gone uh you know, george was around so i could talk to george uh but barry Lyndon had, had been long dead so it was very hard to piece together the history at first so i had to do a lot of searching and then i found i found ann robinson after the fact i didn't interview her for the article by the way since you obviously had more contact with her than i did was there more of her in the spielberg film or was it just a quick glance no just that just that little cameo um she it was really charming uh she and Gene Barry, of course, cameo in the Spielberg remake at basically it's like they don't say it's Clayton and Sylvia, but it's like, oh, they did get hitched, you know, and they had kids and everything else. They just they emerged from the rubble. But it was interesting. She told me Spielberg is a is a huge fan of the movie. And um, there's all these little Easter eggs like there's a shot where Tom Tom Cruise is posed against a street sign and it's Van Buren. Van Buren Street, like Sylvia Van Buren and her <laughs> character. Um, I she also said, she also said this was this was really funny. Spielberg had to have his ask for his picture to be taken with his fingers on her shoulder like the Martian. <laughs> and I've done I've done that too. I had to do it. You know, oh, it's like nobody forgets that moment. That's pretty cool. I, you know, I love Stephen. I love Stephen's work, but the problem I have with the remake is the unlikability factor. I just I, I did not like anybody in that movie and and particularly his son. I wanted I couldn't wait for his son to go join the Martians because <laughs> <laughs> oh my god but uh, the, the, that that aside I thought that the beginning of the Spielberg movie was spectacular and 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 wonderfully uh, done as you expect from a Spielberg movie but getting back to War of the Worlds um it's it's such a it's it, it, yes the color as you pointed the technicolor is just off the charts and i've probably i've probably seen that movie 40 50 times and i also used to have the whole audio on a tape so when i would go to sleep at night i go to sleep to war of the world's dialogue 
And I thought the script was terrific. It you really you really identify with all the people involved. And since I was living in LA, grew up in LA, it was kind of an LA movie because all of the references were LA are great. And 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 has some terrific character actors. I thought Les Tremaine's general man was terrific, particularly when he's describing the Martian tactics. Oh yeah, doing the threes, doing slashing across the board and everything. And Bob Cornthwaite, I also got to know Bob Cornthwaite, um, who, I mean, to, if you love 50s science fiction, I mean, he's in two of the very best, The Thing, and uh, as Dr. Carrington, and, and in uh, War of the Worlds. And um, Bob, uh, Bob's great. Um, Paul Freeze, you actually get to see Paul Freeze Paul on, camera, on camera, which is not just as a disembodied voice, you know. These tapes are for future generations, if any. If any. If any. Uh, <laughs> and I love and I love the fact that um, he got that Powell got uh, Sir Cedric Hardwick to narrate the opening. Oh, yeah. I'm a, I'm a huge. I mean, On Borrowed Time with Hardwick is one of my favorite favorite films. I'm a big fan of Hardwick's, and his narration is just beautiful. It's absolutely. Oh yeah. Beautiful. Well, that opening that has one of the more arresting openings of any, especially with Paul Frees's opening and. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, in, in the First it's, World it's, War, and for the first time in the history of man, nations combined against fight to fight against nations using the crude weapons of those times. The Second World War involved every continent on the globe, and mankind turned to new methods of warfare that reached an unspeakable level of destruction. And now fought for the with the weapons of super science, menacing all mankind and every creature on earth. Comes the War of the Worlds. That was. Yeah, <laughs> That was somewhat paraphrased, but I, yeah, I, I've been listening to that for years. Now, the the movie that I I saw before I saw War of the Worlds because I was in a very very long line in in Westwood, uh, Pico and Westwood at the Pickwood Theater was the Time Machine in 1960, which I saw theatrically, uh, which just blew me away. And I, I find that the Time Machine is one of those movies that you keep watching it. And you never lose your love of it. It's almost like it's kind of, I guess, the equating somebody who's a fine art collector and sits in front of a, a classic painting and enjoys repeated viewings with no no diminishment of their love of it. Um, the Time Machine. Now, whereas War of the Worlds is a Byron Haskin film that he directed, George directed the time machine, anything about, uh, when did George decide that he had to start directing his stuff? I think he, I think he had wanted to all along. I think he sort of realized eventually he would need to. And um, that's a very good question. You know, he was a very reserved guy. Al, you know, if you talk to him or interviewed him, the odds are he would be very nice and very curious and so forth. But he, he kept a lot bottled up. He was very, you know, as one one person that worked with him told me, he, he kept, played his cards very close to his chest. And I think perhaps he might have been concerned about, you know, just getting to know how, getting a better idea of how features were made and of working with actors and of, you know, getting his, you know, improving his English. I don't know. Uh, it's That's a good question. But I think he'd always wanted to. And, um, and also in the case of something like, uh, well, this is interesting. Um, his background in animation, stop motion animation, you know, on the puppetoons and the, the, the European cartoons he did, 
made him ideally suited for special effects driven films because he was used to making movies that were extremely tightly pre-planned. I mean, literally in, in the case of stop motion, you're doing it pre-planning it down to like the, the movement of an eye or, you know, the flick of a finger or something. It was so tightly pre-planned. So he was used to doing that kind of filmmaking. And um, I, I think that's sort of that. And, and of course, with Byron Haskin, Byron Haskin had been the, uh, the head of uh, special effects at Warner Brothers. So he was the perfect guy to bring in to do something like War of the Worlds that's going to be so heavily driven by effects and, and by miniatures. Um, but I'm not entirely sure. That's a very good question, actually. That's a very good question. Um, I think he had always wanted to, and I, I don't know. I don't know. I should ask David Powell that. I would be very curious to hear what he has to say about it. Um, well, I, I, I'm, I'm very... I'm very envious of you because you said you got a chance to sit down with Rod Taylor. Um, yeah, it was a phone interview and he was, he was lovely. He was really lovely. He adored Powell and um, everybody, uh, I mean, everybody on the time machine just loved him. Um, Alan Young adored him. Uh, Russ Garcia that did the music. Um, they just, they just thought he was wonderful. And um, Rod was great. He was very pale fellow, well-met. And uh, he had a great time making the time machine. And I'll never forget, he and William Tuttle that did the makeup on it, the head of makeup at MGM, um, they both said almost word for word the same thing, that MGM just did not give a damn about the movie. And um, they didn't take it seriously. It was treated like a programmer. Uh, they made it for, I think, $800,000, which is, I mean, now seems, seems ludicrous. But the... Back, back to Rod, uh, Rod Taylor, it, I always say he is the glue that binds the time machine together. Um, his perform He carries that movie. And that's not to say that all the other parts don't work. They do. They work beautifully. But Rod is so good at playing a character that you could believe could invent a time machine yet you also believe he could take on a pack of these subterranean monsters and win in a fight. Um, and he has this, he, he is called upon to convey so many different emotions, joy and sadness and delight and horror and shock. I mean, I mean, so many, and he does it so naturally. He, so he, even, he even projects a sense of whimsy looking out his uh, laboratory window and seeing that model in the store across the street, you know, this the 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 thing that Wa Chang and Gene Warren and Projects Eliminated brought to that film in terms of the the whole creation of time changing uh, and time advancing was just so beautifully realized, and you weren't bludgeoned to death by the digital effects. Now today, of course, you can do almost anything, but there's something about the way they filmed that montage of the sun and moon flying across the sky, this, this little snail scurrying across the floor, the flowers opening the petals, the shadow across the sundial. The candles, the candles melting. The candle, oh, the candle, it's just, it's just breathtaking. And then of course, as he advances in time and then the slats of the fence or the, the boards crosses and all of a sudden he's in 1917, he's going across the sea street to see uh, Alan, uh, Alan Young, who turns out to be his son, Jamie. Well, I think, 
Yeah. I think I think one of the one of the main one of the many reasons all that works so well. I mean, Wah and Gene and their whole gang, you know, Ralph Rodine and uh, and David Powell worked on it, and a, a lot of very talented people. One of the reasons the whole movie works so well is because it was edited by George Tomasini, um, and Powell would always praise him to the skies. Uh, Tomasini edited more of Hitchcock's movies than any other editor. He cut Psycho. He cut North by North. I think he cut North by Northwest. I know he cut Rear Window. So this is a superlative top of the line editor. And as I've gotten older and I've paid attention to how beautifully cut the thing is, how invisibly cut it is, there's nothing tricky about the editing, but the editing adds so much to the storytelling and the pacing. Um, like in the scene where he first, where George is standing, or the Rod Taylor standing on the steps of his house and he's looking at the newspaper headlines about war and he's debating whether or not he wants to go for a, a ride in the time machine. And then he, you know, uh, uh, driven, he dr walks across the house and walks into the hallway, opens the door and bam, you get the big reveal of the time machine. The editing in that sequence is just, it, it's beautiful. It's just electric. It's perfect. Um, it's a beautifully, beautifully put together film. I think that's one of the reasons it's held up so well. You have all of this great studio talent that work on it. You know, Rod Taylor, who's just starting out, who's fantastic. Yvette Mimieu and her first lead, it's, it's wonderful. Uh, Alan Young, Sebastian Cabot, Whit Bissell, all these like wonderful, reliable character people. Plus you have, you know, Paul Vogel, the cinematographer who had won an Academy Award for Battleground, Tomasini editing it. And Russ Garcia doing the music, which is just, I mean, phenomenal. Absolutely oh, no, phenomenal And, you know, you have, this is 1960 or 59. MGM's backlot is still intact. And they, um, it's so funny because I've noticed it in several films now, those, uh, the famous steps. And I know they have a name. Um, they're from oh, the Julius Caesar, the Julius Caesar steps. Right, right. Uh, yeah. They actually predate Julius Caesar. Kismet, is it Kismet? Kismet, thank you. They're Kismet, the Kismet yeah. steps. They pop up in the Twilight Zone. They pop up in Julius Caesar. Yeah. And they certainly pop up as the entranceway to the Eloy's uh, sanctuary, uh, which is obviously a soundstage when they get into it. You know, the movie was $800,000, but it has some nice size to it. I mean, they... They, they, they certainly didn't spare the extras. You've got hundreds of blonde blonde extras. And uh, I have to say that uh, I, one of my favorite scenes in that movie is when uh, he's sitting with them and he finds out, uh, do you have any books? And the guy says, books? We have books. And they go into that air and into that uh, underground and you get to see props. I think Bill Malone pointed out to me that uh, the, the some, one of the, uh, uh, whatchamacallit, um, glass or fiberglass or uh perspex the elements of the flying saucer <laughs> forbidden planet are in that room and then there's this some of the statuary from valley of the kings and then they get to the of course the talking rings and we get paul freeze again just love that but i well i'll tell you a funny thing about the the eloy there actually were only this is the brilliance of their pals filmmaking and of thomasini's editing think there were only something like 26 or 27 Eloy. Now, the way they covered it was, part of this was Tuttle told me this, because they, they had to use these synthetic wigs. They couldn't afford better wigs. So if you'll notice, 
So often when Rod Taylor is going past the Eloy, when they're, they're moving towards the Sphinx with the siren, right. their backs are to you. And it's the same Eloy you just saw in the previous shot reconfigured. And they would just use them in different patterns. It was fascinating. It's kind of like, it's like the old trick, like there's a, a Roger Corman movie, Atlas, where he has um, these two, I think it's these Roman generals that are talking and there's an ar the, the army is marching below them. And what he did was he used the same like 30 soldiers and had, had them march in a circle and you don't really notice. So it was just, that was one of the many ways they had to cut down the budget on the thing. I mean, it was, it was tight. Was, was it mostly a backlot movie or did they go to a ranch? Mostly backlot, almost okay. exclusively backlot. The, um, because there's, you know, there's a wonderful, wonderful book called something like MGM Hollywood's Greatest Backlot. And yeah, I, I have it. Like, I have it sitting right here. Oh, God, that book is like crack cocaine. It's addictive. You know, it's incredible. And it goes into all the different areas of MGM. And I think the, the there's that part with the stone bridge. And they think they called that Copperfield Court. And they were linking different parts of the of the lot of the back lot together with matte paintings and things like that. And also, you know, we were talking about Forbidden Planet. Forbidden Planet props got more reuse in MGM productions because it was like, well, we need something science fiction. Grab that Forbidden Planet stuff, you know. So, you know, you see the air raid wardens wearing one of the space suits, and you can see, I think, some of the the, the laser rifles are in the future museum, and. Um, you, there's a ton of, of uh, Forbidden Planet stuff in Pal's movie Atlantis, so they kept they and they got a lot of uh, a lot of reuse on Twilight Zone. Oh so. yeah, no, of course. Now speaking of Atlantis, um, this is another movie I saw about you know the, the year after I saw the Time Machine, and Atlantis is also a very interesting Pal film. I have a question though about casting because yeah. the lead actor in Atlantis was relatively unknown. Um, I'm curious that given the success of the time machine, I was a little surprised that Pal was unable to cast any names other than Edward Platt as the uh, priest. Uh, can you tell us, do you have any information on the casting? You know what? All I, I, that guy is, was named Anthony Hall, whose real name was, I think, Sal Ponte is so woefully miscast. Right. I mean, he's this skinny, it's like casting, and I, I love Griffin Dunn as an actor. He's a brilliant actor, but I would not cast him as a mighty fisherman in a, you know, a, a peplum. And the guy is like, he's this, just a little skinny, very average looking guy. I mean, for God's sakes, like I think Nancy Kovac, who's like, I mean, who's just an Amazon, looks like she could fold and spindle him. I mean, she's <laughs> bigger than he is. I mean, you know, uh, she's wonderful in it. And but I always, you know, it's interesting. I was interviewing Mark Damon, uh, the actor and producer, and he auditioned for that part. And I think William Shatner did too. And I never, I think Mark would have been a hundred times better. In it. Mark would have been much, much better. I honestly don't know why. Now this isn't, this goes back to what I was saying about Pal being kind of closed mouthed about certain things. Um, and I'm going to, I'll go, I'll talk a little about Byron Haskin too, to put this in perspective. 
Um, when Byron Haskin was interviewed, like in Joe Adamson's wonderful oral history with Haskin for the Directors Guild, Haskin, if Haskin worked on a movie that didn't work, he would go on and on and on about everything that didn't work about it and why this didn't work and who didn't work about it and this, that, and the other, and would just tear, would really, really go into detail about it. But when, if you'll notice in interviews with Powell, his movies that bombed, he would talk very little about, he would say fairly, fairly, few fairly minimal things about them and then move on to something else. And um, I think he was just, he, I, 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 I don't know if it was out of deep disappointment or just wanting to kind of forget them or what, but he didn't talk a lot about Atlantis. He didn't talk much about it. Uh, he did, he would say that Daniel, is it Daniel Mainwaring or Daniel Mainwaring? Um, uh, uh, Daniel you... Mainwaring. And by the way, I think you were, I think you, you, you had a little touch of Jason and the Argonauts in you. Uh, you meant, you said Nancy Kovac, you meant Joyce Taylor. Joyce Taylor, that's it. Joyce Taylor, thank you. Thank who you. who the, I thought was very good, but another unknown. The other person who I thought was very good in Atlantis, who always is good playing a baddie, was John Dahl, who had just recently been in Spartacus. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, the funniest, the funniest thing about Dahl in that movie is he's, you know, he is there's a there's a scene that they cut where he comes on to Joyce Taylor and I think she scratches his face and um that man I there is no getting around that man is gay and there is no way to when he is coming on to her that he could pull it off he is very very high camping um but there is something wonderful I mean, he's a great actor I oh, love yeah. the guy yeah and, and he's, the he's so good in gun crazy he's so good in rope he's so and um, and it's great seeing him as this sort of smarmy villain. Him and and even though his dialogue's ridiculous, I love what's his name. Um, oh God, uh, Barry Kroger. Barry Kroger is the Doctor Moreau doctor, and it's and he has the worst one of the most ridiculous lines ever. Every day and every way, I'm becoming more like a bull. I think is the line. <laughs> But, um, well, the, the other thing, the, the physicality of the movie was pretty cool. I mean, again, I, I was 10 years old. I'm watching a submarine craft pull up to a fishing boat. I'm watching animal uh, animals that are humans with animal body, you know, animal heads running around this 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 pan. It was there's a lot to chew on. The thing is, going to the movies in the early 60s was a religious experience for me. I mean, my God, the things I saw that really just, just brought me to New Worlds were just incredible. I want to jump back a little bit because another one of the movies that I find interesting, although it's kind of a long slog to get to the meat of the movie, is The Naked Jungle, uh, which I, is... I I, I love the naked jungle. I think it's um I won't say it's a slog. I think it's it's just it's an adult movie. It's Powell's most adult movie. Right. And it's um he does something really interesting, you know, in uh when Robert Siodmak and Mark Hellinger adapted Hemingway's The Killers with Burt Lancaster, they the story is just the first like 15 minutes of the movie. And they just jump off from there. And with The Naked Jungle, uh, Line Engine versus the Ants, the brilliant 
Carl Stevenson's brilliant short story uh, is just the last act of the movie. And they build up this whole fascinating story. One of the funniest things about it is the um, Eleanor Parker is just fantastic. She is such a spitfire. She is she has so much power and so much presence. And the beauty of it is you have Charlton Heston playing an oddball. I mean, a guy who's really like he's gotten squirrely from being in the jungle too long. And um, she's the one with her shit together. And he's kind of like he's, as I said, I think squirrely is the best way to put it. And um, it's about how this woman sort of brings him out of his shell. And um, I think it's a fantastic movie. Um, it's uh, it also one of the things I love most about that movie is that it raises a lot of questions that are very uncomfortable to people even today. There's a part where Heston is explaining how his plantation works and he's showing uh, uh, Eleanor Parker. Um, what's her name? What's the, the character's name? Um, anyway, he's showing her the, the, the coffee and the cocoa and such that he's, he's uh, harvesting. And he talks about all the people that die and the horrible conditions they work, or work under and all this stuff. And he goes, and all of this so that your friends back in New Orleans yeah, I, 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 it's it's definitely a moment. I'm looking up really quickly. Can have get the, you uh, did you lose me there for a second? No, no. I was just saying. I was just uh, I was looking up her character name to get you the character name, uh, uh, which I have been unable to get. But Eleanor Parker was one of the great beauties in Hollywood. I mean, pe people today remember her from The Sound of Music, but she um, she's. Uh, She's a she's a gorgeous actress, and I'm very friendly with her son Paul Clemens. I am too. I just had lunch with Paul about a month ago. Oh, yeah. sure. Well, um, the um, we, talked, we talked a lot about it, and he explained to me how the the gag, how the the ants were done. A lot of the effects with the ants were done. And well, um, tell me, tell me a little bit about that because I'm curious because it physically the movie is very very uh, exciting the way that was done. Some of it was real ants. Some of it was they would have rubber ants, I think, mixed with real ants. And they used some sort of like thin wire and they would move it under sand so that the, it would jiggle the rubber ants. And it would give this illusion of all this, this huge, you know, sheet of, of moving ants and so forth. There were a lot of rubber ants used, and they, I think there were some in different colors. Like I think there might have been a red, red ones and black ones and things like that. By the um, way, Eleanor's character name was Joanna. Joanna, that's it, Joanna. But um, but oh, but what I was saying about you know what he what he says about the horrible conditions and everything, um, you know, a lot of it's it's like today. I mean, so many of the goods and the goods that we use are made in essentially slave factories in other countries you know they're made under horrible conditions but we don't want to talk about it and um and we're complicit in it and i love the fact that he talks to her about that and he's basically saying you're you know every one of your friends that drinks coffee is getting it because of the suffering of, of me and my people um but uh it's a it's a very intelligent movie it's a really well written movie um and again you talk about oh go ahead I was just going to say he didn't get Paul Freeze, but he got the the next best voice in William Comrade, 
Because when William Conrad is describing the Marabunta with that voice, it's very effective. Oh, and of course, and and I mean, who can say Marabunta better where he first says, he goes, Marabunta. And then Heston, like he stands up and he looks around and he walks and he makes sure that none of the staff heard, none of his people heard because they're going to be, he knows they're going to be running like, like scared cats. I, 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 I love at one point, uh, they go out on a scouting expedition and he reached, I think it's either Heston or Conrad reaches down and finds an ant and it's like a scout. And I love the fact that, that the, the, the Marabunta has sent out their scouts. The other movie that we've got to talk a little bit about, Justin, is Tom Thumb, because uh, talk, talk about a charming movie. Uh, Tom Thumb, which pops up on Turner Classic Movies frequently these days, is such a terrific vehicle for one of my favorite actors, Russ Tamlin. Uh, was it was it was it a positive experience for Pal? Uh, oh, absolutely, absolutely, positively. And um, the I adore that movie. I absolutely adore that movie. Um, uh, you talk about a film that will just leave you feeling better about everything. Period. I mean, it's so beautifully put together. The effects are so beautifully done. The cast is marvelous, you know, Jesse Matthews and Alan Young and um, that poor June Thorburn that plays Queenie, the queen of the forest, who sadly she died in a car wreck, I think, oh. not too long after that. It was very, very sad. I think maybe eight, seven, eight years after that. Um, she's wonderful. And um, God, and Tony, Tony, uh, uh, Terry Thomas and Peter Sellers. Terry was, Thomas and Peter really. Sellers are so funny. Well, Alan, Alan Young, Alan Young did the best Peter or best Terry Thomas impersonation I've ever heard. And it was so simple. <laughs> he was talking about, you know, there's a fight scene. There's the big fight scene where he goes, uh, he and Tom go to get the gold back. And um, they're fighting with with Tony and Ivan, you know, Terry Thomas and Peter Sellers. And there was a part where Terry Thomas had to throw a torch at Alan. And Alan went over to me and goes, you know, Terry, you know, I, I could you could you please be careful and make sure the, the torch goes far away from me? And he did this and he goes, oh, yes, 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 yes. And that was his Terry Thomas. It was perfect. And of course, Terry Thomas throws the torch like a foot from his head. But um, but no, it's 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 a wonderful the, the, the music's charming. You know, oh, yeah. Peggy, Peggy Lee that did I'm mean, a huge Peggy Lee fan. And um, she had been friends with Powell for a long time. She did a song. She did music in at least one of the puppetoons. And she, they had written, they had Tom Thumb prepared in like 1947. Um, and originally, I think he, you know, he wanted to bring Buster Keaton into it. Uh, at one point, he would, I, I think he was talking about using Laurel and Hardy as Tony and Ivan. I mean, he he had all these different ideas for it. And then finally he got it off the ground, um, partly because they filmed it in England using the uh, the Edie plan, using frozen tax assets. But um, I, I just adore Tom Thumb. It's a lovely film. One of my sweetest memories of um, Tom Thumb was I went to see a Technicolor print of it that formerly belonged to a collector named Ken Kramer. I was watching uh, the Technicolor print of it at the New Beverly. And with me was George Powell's grandson, Jeremy, Jeremy's wife, and Jeremy's kids. So I was, they, it was George Powell's great grandchildren. 
and they, his great granddaughters, and they had never seen one of his movies before. And um, it was so funny because they're, they're, they were very little at the time. I think they were like five and six or five and seven or something. And it gets to the credits and they're watching, and they said something to their mom. And I, I turned to Jeremy, I said, what did they say? And they said, and he said, they said, why is our name up there? <laughs> it was very it was really but it was wonderful seeing them react oh, to sure. you know i can't tell you how many times i hum that i mean that's to me if you ever want to put yourself in a good mood and, and a kind of yes. a lighthearted mood all you need to do yes. is start humming that uh this has been wonderful justin i want to give you a chance to plug your book tell people how they can find george pal man of tomorrow Okay, you can order copies of George Powell, Man of Tomorrow on Amazon.com or uh, direct from the publisher at BearManorMedia.com from Bear Manor Media. Um, and uh, it's 672 pages and it's everything you ever wanted to know about George Powell that we're afraid to ask. It's all. <laughs> what, are I, you, what are you working on today? What am I working on now? Um, I'm finishing up a project that I can't talk about just yet, but it's it's pretty big. And um, it's not horror and science fiction related, but it is related to old Hollywood. Um, but it's almost done. Um, I've done some audio commentaries and on-camera stuff. And um, I've actually, uh, let's see, I'm trying to think what I can talk about that's, uh not have too you, long have you done the commentary tracks on any pal films i have actually i i did a commentary on uh the first blu-ray of the naked jungle with my friend courtney joiner right and i did a solo commentary on i think it was the first no it was the second blu-ray of conquest of space and that got a rondo nomination i got nominated for best commentator on that and I did a couple of featurettes that are on the marvelous, wonderful world of the Brothers Grimm Blu-ray from Warner Archive. And you can see me on the Paramount and Criterion War of the Worlds discs. They keep, they keep reviving this documentary I was in years ago called uh, The Sky is Falling Got about it. the making of War of the Worlds. So I keep popping up in that. Um, but yeah, the one I would I would love to do, and if anybody from a video label is listening to this, I would love to do commentaries on Destination Moon and Seven Faces of Dr. Light. I would love to do Seven Faces. Oh, well, those are two great titles. We've been listening to Justin Humphreys, the, the master of George Powell's world, and definitely run out and get his book, George Powell Man of Tomorrow. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. You've been listening to Saturday Night at the Movies. Our producer's Ben Shrewsbury. Uh, thanks so much, Justin. This has been terrific. Oh, my God. The pleasure is all mine. Tootie, tootie, too. <laughs> <laughs>